This Week in Chaos. And it's only going to get worse. I'm Matt Robeson. It's the Balance of Power Roundtable, part of the Beyond Politics podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, on the Blue Amp channel on YouTube, joined as always by our panel of former Democratic U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes and our conservative analyst, commentator, and political consultant Alicia Preston. Let's get right into it. Late last night, a story posted on Politico that there has been a challenge on 14th Amendment grounds to Donald Trump appearing on the ballot in New Hampshire. You are obviously both New Hampshire political experts, the Secretary of State involved, the person who brought the challenge involved. And by the way, the wrinkle here is that the person bringing the challenge is a Republican, Corky Messner, who was the Trump-endorsed candidate for the U.S. Senate in 2020, was it, Alicia? And look, we're bringing this up at the top of the show because, as our listeners and viewers probably know, 14th Amendment challenges to candidates appearing on the ballot have been discussed in recent years ever since the insurrection. And they have been successfully used to keep some of the insurrectionists off the ballot for lower offices. A new legal article that we've talked about on this show from ultra-conservative legal scholars has reignited the debate because they argue not only is Trump ineligible to appear on the presidential ballot, but also that is a self-executing feature of the 14th Amendment, meaning any Secretary of State or state elections official can determine on their own, without any conviction in a court of law, that Donald Trump is ineligible to appear on the ballot because of the 14th Amendment. And so all it takes is an individual bringing a legal challenge, bringing a challenge to a Secretary of State, like Mr. Mesner has done in this case, to ignite this whole process. And we're seeing the start of it. And I have a prediction here, which is we're going to see a lot more of this in a lot more states. But Alicia, let's just turn to you first. I know you have mixed feelings about the application of the 14th Amendment in general here, despite your opposition to Donald Trump. Mr. Messner, you know the situation. This has split New Hampshire Republicans, obviously. What's the latest? What are you hearing about this? And what was your reaction? There's a lot of talk. It has split New Hampshire Republicans, the chair of the Republican Party. Chris Ager has come out and said he's opposed to this, and I agree with him. And he was has been a Trump supporter in the past, and I am not, but I agree with him. Look, I, don't, I just don't believe our founding fathers, in all the detail and the effort they went to to make sure that no one could unilaterally be in a corruptible position to make decisions so significant as this, intended for any secretary of state to have that unilateral power. I just don't believe that would ever be the intention with all the other care taken by the forefathers in our founding documents. But certainly politically, it is splitting the Republican Party in New Hampshire. There's three groups. There's those that want to see it happen, those that oppose it in part because they like Donald Trump, and those like me who don't support Donald Trump but don't want to walk down what's not a slippery slope, an absolute avalanche. And I'm opposed to it for that reason. We'll see. I do not foresee it happening in New Hampshire. I do not foresee him being taken off the ballot unless he is convicted of something before such time. And this is where I want to be super careful because you both know Doug Scanlon, the Secretary of State of New Hampshire, and you. I don't want to put you in a position of trying to predict for him. But Paul, the, the first thing that Mr. Scanlon has done, Doug, is to consult with the Attorney General of the state of New Hampshire and get some legal guidance here. You used to be an assistant attorney general. Do you have any initial sense of what's going to come back here from a legal standpoint? What Do you have any expectations about whether this is going to succeed? 
It's a fascinating question. New Hampshire is leading the way. It's a matter of first impression in terms of the applicability of this 14th Amendment insurrection clause to a presidential candidate. Although it's self-executing and although Alicia voices concerns about the corruptibility of an individual like a secretary of state being able to make this decision, obviously the next step is to the courts. So if Scanlon was to make the decision that Trump was ineligible, the Trump campaign would file a legal challenge, it would go to the state court and likely end up in the U.S. Supreme Court. It's a fascinating, it's a fascinating question because, Matt, as you pointed out, ultra-conservative legal scholars raised the issue. There's been discussion about this from the beginning, where, when Trump was basically giving his little get him speech at the ellipse uh, and then standing by for hours while the Capitol was sacked, people were, were already talking about his involvement, either inciting in the insurrection or giving aid or comfort to the enemies of the Constitution. The evidence is out there of his participation that would, that would qualify under the 14th Amendment. I think whether or not there's a criminal conviction or not for insurrection, the evidence is there. So the critical point is the provision doesn't require a conviction. So it would clearly go to the courts if Mr. Scanlon made the decision that he was in, ineligible. It's fascinating that this is being brought to 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 the fore by a Republican, former Trump endorsed candidate, ran for the U.S. Senate, who is an attorney. This New Hampshire Secretary of State has asked for the New Hampshire Attorney General to weigh in. So uh, the New Hampshire Attorney General is going to have to take a, an unbiased, independent view of the meaning of the Fourth Amendment and have discussions with the New Hampshire Secretary of State about what the New Hampshire Secretaries of State's powers are. The Attorney General's office is unlikely to tell him which way to decide, uh, but they can certainly tell him whether he has the power to do something or not to do something. Now, that's going to be an important legal question answered by the Attorney General. I would expect that if the Attorney General issues some sort of advisory opinion, that would be published. Let's just say it was the Attorney General issues an advisory opinion that says the Secretary of State doesn't have the power to unilaterally rule that Trump is ineligible on the ballot. Well, Corky Mesner may very well then bring a legal challenge himself and say he's an aggrieved New Hampshire citizen who, because of Trump's actions, doesn't want to see Trump on the ballot. He would then sue the state, basically, saying, asking for a ruling about whether Scanlon has the power. Now, all of this is coming while the deadlines for getting on the ballot are very close. This is all coming down the pike really quickly. So we may see some very rapid developments. I want to drill down on one aspect of this that you alluded to, which is without a criminal conviction in the January 6th case. And I want to separate that. So we're talking about is the federal January 6th case as opposed to the Georgia election interference case. They're both related. In the January 6th case, there are four counts against Donald Trump, and they involve a conspiracy to violate civil rights, a conspiracy to defraud the government, that's the false slates of electors, the corrupt obstruction of an official proceeding, 
and a conspiracy to carry out that obstruction. Those are criminal counts, but they are not specifically an insurrection or sedition charge. So does it matter to these efforts if Trump is convicted? Will that change potentially the legal finding? Let's say, just to game this out, and I'm filibustering to let you think about my ultimate question here. Let's say this challenge goes forward. Let's say Doug Scanlon or some other Secretary of State Dave. with some other Dave. What am I saying with Doug? Sorry, sorry, Dave. We used to know each other, Dave. Let's say some other Secretary of State makes a ruling that keeps Trump off the ballot. And let's say it does go to the courts. And let's say it works its way up to the Supreme Court. In the interim, while all this is going on, it is possible that we could have a conviction in the January 6th case. So if Trump is convicted with of one of those four counts, would that matter? to the Supreme Court's finding about whether he's eligible to appear on ballots because of the 14th Amendment? Maybe, but I don't, I'm not sure. And the reason I'm not sure is because folks are talking about the question of whether he is convicted of insurrection, because it's a federal crime punishable by up to 10 years in jail to be convicted for the insurrection, arguably interfering with the election under the counts that are in Georgia or any of the other counts really do not speak directly to the question of insurrection, because the insurrection, theoretically, the insurrection is the riot at the Capitol and not sim not the in interfering with the election. Those are separate. So those who are parsing this issue around conviction would probably say he has to be convicted of insurrection. Now, let's just take a look at what happened in New Mexico. On August 6th, a judge ordered that a county commissioner be removed from office under the 14th Amendment after being... Right convicted of participating in the January 6th Capitol riot. So he used the insurrection clause and the, the person in question, Coey Griffin, was found guilty of a misdemeanor for illegally entering a restricted area of the Capitol and was sentenced to 14 days of pr in prison. In June, in the ruling, they found that he had attended the stop the steal rallies, that he was connected with a militia group. And the judge took a look at it and said not only that the January 6th attack, said the judge, not only included the mob violence, but also, quote, the surrounding planning, mobilization and incitement leading up to the, the attack and said he's constitutionally disqualified from serving. So in that case, there had been a conviction directly related the insurrection, i.e. illegally entering and staying in a place. But the 14th Amendment doesn't require, Clause 3 doesn't require a conviction. And I think the concerns of those who say he's got to have a conviction are overblown because one way or another, this question is going to go to the courts and the and there will be a judicial there will be a judicial process but let's I, map this out a little bit even if let's say you can convince someone like me that if he's convicted whether it's of insurrection or something surrounding January 6th that we need that conviction before a secretary of state can do anything it's already too late right the trial starts may march 4th by the time it's over if he gets convicted of anything you're looking at may at april and by then how many ballots and the rest of the few states remaining have already been printed. Despite all of that, he could, if things sit the way they are and nothing changes, win the Republican nomination. And then what happens? Now it's an issue for the general election. What do you do there? 
because there's only Biden and Trump on it. So how does this even work unless so, something can be done at a convention? But I think it's a lot more complicated than just yeah, keep them listen, off the ballot or keep them on. Look, when we talk about what's possible, we've been talking about it. Let's just say it. I've been talking about it at the 30,000 foot level. You're talking about it with the landing gear down. Obviously, those are important factors. The thing that what we that we haven't discussed yet is that the same provision which provides that somebody who participates in or incites or gives aid or comfort to the rebellion or insurrection also provides that Congress may, by a two-thirds vote of each House, remove the disability so that if there was an overwhelming sentiment in the House and the Senate, if Trump was removed from the ballot, the House and the Senate could vote by two-thirds majority to allow him to be on the ballot anyway which we can't get a two-thirds majority no for let's take a break we'll be right back so part of the reason that i wanted to set up the question to you paul about whether a conviction would matter to an eventual supreme court case which i predict we're going to end up with one here is that i think it would matter i think it would matter but it's not necessary Sure. I just was trying to tease out some of what I suggested at the top of the show, which was actually an idea that Alicia had suggested to me, which is chaos. We are in the midst of chaos. And I think the chaos that's coming, people have no idea. And if I get one idea across to everybody in this show, it's that I think we're underselling the degree of chaos that's coming for us. Here's what I mean. First, what we're seeing in New Hampshire is the fact that any party can bring one of these challenges. Now, we've got 50 states. Each state is going to end up eventually with some party bringing this kind of a challenge. That is very likely in my mind, which means we're going to have all kinds of cases and all kinds of challenges. Now, many of the states have Republican election machinery, meaning Republican secretaries of state. I was just on the radio with Howard Monroe in West Virginia. He was talking about the West Virginia secretary of state, who is a conspiracy theorist whack job. And so this this effort to get Trump off the ballot will not fly in West Virginia. There are plenty of states where there are even Republican secretaries of state who will at least give it the time of day and some consideration. So that is going to happen. What is likely to happen in my mind is that Republicans are going to respond in kind. If there are any filings to get Trump off the ballot, there will be Republican parties who try to get Biden off the ballot on the grounds that under the 14th Amendment, he's given aid and comfort to the enemies of the Constitution because of his failure to enforce the border or some crap like that. This is a theory that Republicans in Congress have used to attempt to impeach the Secretary of Homeland Security, Mayorkas, and they have not moved forward with that. But this is something that at least a faction of Republicans believe is a viable argument. Someone is going to attempt it. And there's probably going to be a whack job Secretary of State somewhere looking at you, West Virginia, who's going to give that the time of day. All of this is going to end up in court. As Alicia alluded to a moment ago, the clock is a factor here. The fact that the January 6th case is now scheduled, it might slip a little bit, but it's now scheduled for March 4th, the night before, the day before Super Tuesday. Most of these primaries will have happened. You're going to have Trump on the ballot. You're going to have Biden on the ballot. They're going to be the nominees probably, although we'll talk about that in a second. And then you have 
the potential of all of this ending up in the Supreme Court with all of these things in motion at the same time and the campaign moving forward, not to mention all of the other cases against Trump moving forward. That's what I mean by chaos. Hey, there is know, going. We've just had the movie. We've already seen everywhere it. all at once. once. We're right. all living in a new quantum <clears throat> reality, folks. Right. There are parallel universes which are all going along and intersecting. And I mean, it it's a crazy ride. I just I what I want to get across is I could be wrong in this prediction. Most predictions end up wrong, but I think we're now in a world where there is a very significant possibility. I think likelihood that this is the road we're going down, that by next summer, we are going to be in a place where there are multiple legal challenges. There are cases going in the Supreme Court. We're not sure who we're voting for. We're not sure who's going to appear on ballots. We have the legal status of Donald Trump, the freedom of Donald Trump at issue, and there are going to be appeals if there are convictions. It is going to be a huge legal mess. And my final point about all of this is that it has not gone well for us when we've had to have the court system step in and try to sort out the mess when we've gotten all tangled up in our electoral politics. It didn't go well in 2000 in Bush v. Gore. Many Americans did not accept what they said there. There have been reverberations from that decision that have gone for the last 23 years. And I think we're headed down a very perilous road. And that is all I have to say about that, as Forrest Gump would say. Alicia, you and I wrote an article together last week. We, have, we, we did. We had a co-byline in Newsweek. And now I'm gonna offer some hope to all of our viewers and listeners, which is we don't have to go through all this. There's still a chance that we could just not nominate Donald Trump. Republicans actually have that in their power. Like they could just nominate someone else, any of those other yahoos. You could nominate Russian plant and ultra billionaire right winger mole Vivek Ramaswamy if you want. You could choose any of these other yahoos. You hey, don't have on, to Vivek, go with Vivek is the, He's the star of the moment. He's burning bright. Everybody is. He is having... nuttier than squirrel poo. Vivek Seriously, I, can we talk about him on the debate last week? Did you guys go. watch this? I uh, First of all, I thought he was rude. I thought he was. What a smile. Uh, out of control. What a smile. Uh, he was disrespectful to his <laughs> colleagues. And I thought he was immature. <laughs> I didn't understand it. And Annie obviously has way too much caffeine before he went on that debate stage or something. But he was so unlikable. And now you can see these polls, but then you see the polls from four days later and you realize and what people are actually talking about. He turned a lot of Republicans off. And here's my other question. Who are you going for? Because all you're saying is I'm Trump, but younger and a little louder. Well, I can't believe that's possible, but it is. So who do you think is going to vote for you? He's going to, to be VP. He wants the VP slot. Not getting it. I, I just And then his record comes out that he didn't vote in most of the last several primaries and things. And he's all, oh, I was young. I was in my 20s. Dude, you were in your 20s less than a decade ago. That doesn't fly. You're not voting, goes, you don't get the It goes smack dab with he doesn't think people in their 20s should be able to vote. Right, I want to put in a shameless plug for we actually were very privileged to work with an outstanding polling firm that was live dial testing 
during the Republican debate with swing voters in Wisconsin. Note, Wisconsin is one of the critical swing states in the 2024 election, and the swing voters, the independent voters, the undecided voters of Wisconsin are the key pivot point in one of the key pivot states. These are people we want to hear. We put the video of that dial testing up on the Blue Amp channel on YouTube with some commentary. We, we spliced it together into something very short. We just chose the best seven minutes with an interview I did with the pollsters involved. I just want to commend that to everyone. Go check that out. It's really worth watching. I, I tried to get the moments where you really saw a difference between the reactions in the room, between the right-wing Fox News crowd and the reactions of swing voters. You've both been part of dial testing. It's really super fascinating. It's interesting to see. And that the headline here is swing voters hated all of these moments that seem to be working for Republicans. All the praise and applause lines that Vivek Ramaswamy got, swing voters hated that stuff. Go check out the video if you wanna see more. But Alicia, yeah, right, it, it was a clown car going on last week, but your, what you and I wrote, and we don't agree on all aspects of this, but we agree on what we put in the article, which mm -hmm. is there is an opportunity. You can check this out on Newsweek. It's right now, it's, it's still up there, that this is still, there's one last shot for the Republican party to redeem themselves from the last eight years to not nominate Donald Trump for a third time. Our key message was there are still enough Republicans who are persuadable. There's actually a majority. This is something you've been screaming from the rooftops. There are a majority of Republicans who are either already against Trump or persuadable. They're open. And we actually know the message that will move them. Republicans do care about his criminality. They are responding as they learn about his criminality. And there's new polling that's come out even since we wrote our Newsweek article that shows that the majority of Republican voters, if you look at each of the four cases against Donald Trump right now. The majority of Republican voters have only heard a little or nothing about them in specific. So there is, as we say in the campaign world, room to grow for opposition to Donald Trump in the Republican party. What it takes is the will. What it takes is the coordinated action of the Republican party, of Republican office holders, funders, names, people with credibility with Republican voters to band together and say, enough, stop. We're going in a different direction. We are against Trump. And not in a kind of Lincoln Project-esque kind of, hey, look at me kind of way, in a, we are stopping Trump, we are done with this. The ingredients are all there. That's my summary. Alicia, anything to add from our argument? No, I think that's true. The numbers are there to give the, an okay. Okay, other Republicans. Okay, Republican voters. Okay, Republicans that don't have big national names. We're with you. It's okay to oppose Donald Trump. You don't have to be afraid anymore. Hey, my, my colleague, you don't have to be afraid anymore. Look, on that stage, six out of the eight candidates last week were asked if Donald Trump were convicted, would they still support him? Six said yes. I was very disappointed in that. And I don't believe it. I don't believe in a million years that Nikki Haley or Mike Pence are going to publicly support Donald Trump if he is the nominee. They don't think he should be president. They need to be told, it's okay. Come with the majority of Republicans. You can let go of Donald Trump. We know you want to. We know you want to. And the next step, of course, would be for Republicans to find, OK, who can we coalesce around? Because with nine people in the race, including Donald Trump, there's no way 
Donald Trump could win with 30% of the Republican vote. There's no way to have that split make sense unless we Republicans can come out and be like, in the next two months, let's say, before October, mid-October, come out and say, these are the two Republicans we're going to coalesce around that aren't Donald Trump, and then start lighting a fire. And my disappointment with the debate wasn't that I think anyone did anything super wrong other than Vivek, because that was weird. The rest of them did fine, but no one did anything to light a fire necessarily to be the other than Trump nominee and or choice. And I think we've got to try to find a way to do that. And that would be the step after doing what we wrote about, which is you can oppose Donald Trump now. It's safe. That was a key point. It was something you raised when we were talking about formulating this before we wrote it, which is permission structure is really critical. And we put this in the article that that what Republicans can do, we don't expect the candidates who are currently running for president to do this because they're spineless and they're self-interested and they're hoping someone else can't somebody else do this can't somebody else do the dirty work and take the slings from donald trump and all that stuff there is somebody who could who mitch mcconnell mitch mcconnell is actually the person in government and respected across the i think pretty much across the board by Republicans for his strategic wild, his record of achievement of Republican aims. Mitch McConnell is somebody who could deal with this. And frankly, the way it would work is McConnell would reach out to Kevin McCarthy and very quietly in back rooms and backroom deals without telling anybody about it. The two of them would get to work about this. And that is, I think, where this has got to happen. Because you can putting everything aside for the Republicans, putting aside my incredible bias against Donald Trump for all the reasons that I've ranted about here, the guy's a loser. He, the Republican Party under Trump has lost and lost. They held the House by the merest sliver. They lost. He's lost more. He's got a terrible record. What's, what is he? One in four. It's time to pull the pitcher just on the basis of who can win and who can lose. You can forget everything else if you're a Republican. So I think that Chris Sununu ought to be talking to Mitch McConnell. That's what I think. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. I think this is a brilliant point. And it's funny you should mention this because Jonathan Martin of Politico wrote a fascinating deep dive on Mitch McConnell, like the autumn of Mitch McConnell. And it was mostly focused on his advocacy for Ukraine and trying to keep alive an older version of a Republican Party that believed in a very muscular foreign policy, uh, much more aggressive and assertive and take our place in the world and protect our allies kind of foreign policy that very much includes Ukraine. But there was a thread in there of Mitch McConnell really is slowing down and his influence, while still there, his ability to really assert himself within the party does seem to be waning a little bit. We've actually invited Jonathan onto the show. Not sure he's going to be able to do it, but Paul, I think you bring up an absolutely insightful and fascinating point. And I think what you're also saying is you are a former Democratic member of Congress. I'm a former Democratic staffer. I've run against Republicans, but per this show, we don't hold any animus against individual Republicans per se. We have a Republican we like very much that we work with on a week-to-week basis right here. Alicia, you and I just wrote an article together. We are pleading with our cousins, the Republicans, and we all share a country here. Please, we know we fought about this particular issue. Please let us help you. It's if you saw your cousin on a like a meth bender, it's I, I want it. This is a little tough love. 
Like we actually want to help you. We really do. We want to get back to silly arguments about, or they're serious arguments, but we want to get back to the kinds of arguments we used to have about fiscal policy and maybe social policy and policy in general. We don't want to be arguing about the continued existence of the United States. One other guest that I may invite back to the show, the Philadelphia Inquirer national columnist, Will Bunch, wrote a really important, influential article, a lot of discussion about it over the last couple of days on Twitter, which I should now call X, in which he said, why are we treating the Republican nomination process like just another campaign? Why are we treating the debate just another political debate? It's, it's not. We are now in a place where we are trying to stand against a, an authoritarian movement that if Donald Trump is successful, it will be the end of the United States as we know it. I don't think that's hyperbole. I, I, Alicia, you've said this, you, we agree about this. And so why are we treating this and these candidates who are giving cover to him and six out of the eight of them are saying, oh, if he's convicted, we'd still support him. Why would you support him at all in the first place? Why are we treating any of this as normal? And so again, I think that is oh, the biggest problem. Why why is any of this the new normal and acceptable? And part of the reason I think it was Mike Pence afterwards was asked why he said that. And no, it wasn't Mike Pence. Anyway, someone was asked after why they said that and pointed out that to be on the debate stages, you have to agree to support the Republican nominee. First of all, I think that requirement needs to be dropped. I don't think it ever should have been there. You can make them pledge to have a Republican ideals, beliefs, and a system because that's they're running on the Republican ticket, which, by the way, Vivek Ramaswamy, I believe, is registered as an independent. It recently came out. But you can't require them to have guilt toward whomever the nominee is. And that's what this requirement is. And that's completely unacceptable. What if you've got a pro-choice Republican up there? And what if you're someone else is staunchly pro-life, like the kind of pro-life that I could never vote for someone who's pro-choice? I think that's murder. And the pro-choice candidate wins. Does that person really, to be on a debate stage, have to agree to put aside his what to him may be his religious strength and belief and foundational system in order to appear on a debate stage? It's a flawed requirement to begin with. And I think that's why some of them said yes, so they could appear next time. Kudos to Chris Christie and Asa Hutchinson, who didn't bite. Yeah, absolutely. All right, look, this is a really profound, I, I, I hope people will check out the Newsweek article. This is our sincere attempt to do what we can to light a little bit of a fire, as you say, Alicia, get people together, create the permission structure. Paul and I can't do it, right? We're not in the Republican family, but we can make the case, give a little push, team up with you, and it's not too late. It's never too late. So, okay. Alicia, call your best buddy, Chris Nuno, got him on your speed dial and ask him to put a call in brother Mitch and just let him have a quiet conversation. Because even if your fanboy Chris doesn't want to be president right now, he does want to be president someday. And he could emerge with a little prodding from you as the behind-the-scenes kingmaker of this next election by using the platform that he has so politically adeptly acquired and starting to push some of the elected Republicans towards sanity. I will promise to use every ounce of my influence, take that as you may, to make that happen. Mm -hmm. It's just influence. All right, love it. Or um, lack thereof.
Hey, we're talking about the most profound kind of issue for our country. I just want to, at the risk of giving people a little bit of audio whiplash here, just change gears at the very end of the show and talk about one small legal thing that may be consequential. Paul, you had wanted to raise Mark Meadows' argument that was heard in court yesterday. Boy, we're going to race to get this episode out because there may be a ruling on this. There was. By the time we get this out. There was a ruling. And what's the ruling? The judge has ruled that Meadows has to stay in state court. He is not allowed to move to federal court. Essentially, they didn't buy his immunity argument. That poses real challenges for all right yeah let's hit that could you just give the legal explanation yeah Yeah. go why is this significant why does it matter and i'm not that worried about the jury pool question that's i feel like that's a red herring why in terms of his defense is this legally significant if in the course of your official duties as a federal officer you do things that are bad things, you may be immunized because you may have immunity from prosecution for the acts committed in your official capacity because they were committed in your official capacity. It's the way we protect people like me when I was in Congress from certain prosecution because if I did something in the course of my official duties. So this question of whether or not Meadows, the chief of staff, when he was participating in the wrongful, alleged wrongful acts in Georgia, was doing it so as part of his official duties as chief of staff or in some other capacity is what he brought to to the feder- to the feder- to the judge to try to move his case to federal court and the argument would be yeah even though i was chief of staff and that's my official duty my the duties were so broad that participating in uh, trying to overturn the election was part of my official duty because i was still chief of staff and all of that w- i did in good faith as part of my official capacity. So let me read that back to you real quick because I just tried to give this legal explanation on Howard Monroe's show. And I'm very happy to say that what you just said, and you and I haven't talked about this in advance, very much ratifies the explanation I gave. So I'm feeling great about that. Basically what you're saying is that this little motion to move the Meadows trial, and I guess it's all one trial, right? To federal court was was like a mini trial on the central defense that Meadows and Trump and the other co-conspirators were going to offer here, which is, hey, this is all just official duties. This is all covered under the duties of the president. Therefore, we can do all this. Stop the call to Raffensperger, the messing with election workers, all the fake electors, all of this stuff. It's all official duties and that protects us. If the judge had ruled, yes, you can have this heard in federal court, that would have been a, hey, there's a pathway for this central defense. That would have been good news for Trump. The fact that the judge has ruled, no, you cannot make that, we're not gonna move this to federal court, is a big bucket of cold water on that legal defense. And that's very bad news for Trump, Meadows, and the rest of them. And let me also say, I have given a very, we'll call it a gross summary of the concept of immunity. The actual application of the concept of immunity to the president and his and others working for him and others is, is not nearly so simple as what I've laid out. So I've given the essentials of what official immunity is, because there are real questions about ex-presidents and presidents. There are still open questions, I think, sure. uh, that are that could be available to Trump. But we can all agree that the situation is definitely gross, no matter what 
there you go. It's gross. That's why I use the word. Exactly. Can I weigh in on one thing here, which I'm not sure whether it was or was not part of this ruling in Georgia, but it is part of the discussion and it should be, is that let's not forget you cannot work, you cannot campaign on the taxpayer's dime. When you are working in your official it's called the Hatch Act, people. It's called the Hatch Act. You can't right. campaign. So if his defense is, I was breaking the Hatch Act, that's a fascinating argument. It now, was, and that's literally what the prosecutors were arguing in response. They were literally saying, hey, we have the Hatch Act. No. And I think what Trump was thinking was, we did hold the Republican convention at the White House. So we've already thrown up that whole thing. Doesn't exist just anymore. so people understand how strict this is, if you work for, I worked for an administration, state, not federal, but I worked for a governor, and he was running for re-election. I couldn't speak to the campaign. The only people allowed to speak to the campaign is the principal, which would be in this case, the governor, and a scheduler, because they're allowed to arrange where he's going to be when. That's it. When it was decided I should go to the campaign, I had to quit my state job give up my state benefits to go to a campaign so that I could work with them. That's how strong that line is. You can't do what Mark Meadows' defense is. Yeah, if you want to follow the law, what I used to do as a chief of staff is I had a little thing called a cell phone. And you would see lots of people like me, lots of as like staffers were the larval form of lobbyists. And we hey would now. all have our cell phones. Oh, sorry, you're a beautiful butterfly. Larva can become butterflies. We would all scurry out. It's, oh, I'm getting a call from the campaign. Hold on a minute, I will call you back. And I'd take the elevator down from the Longworth House office building and I'd scurry outside off of the grounds of the federal property and I'd call back and I'd say, okay, I can talk to you now. I wouldn't I'm on lunch break, else. I can talk now, I'm right. on my own time. On my own time. And no. I would, we were very serious about this kind of stuff because I just, it's the law. How about this, people? I actually want to follow the law because it's the freaking law. Yeah. I may have spoken too soon. I thought I saw there was a decision. So let's, so don't hold me to that one. Oh boy. Okay. That's I'm going to tell our crack staff in the editing room that they have a long night and a lot of coffee ahead of them. All right. On that very logistically dull note for everyone, I'm Matt Robeson. And on behalf of Alicia and Paul, we will talk to you next time.